Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Katoa. By your numbers, you clearly know the talent of our guest tonight. Consecutive Pulitzers on the cover of Time magazine, America's storyteller, they called him. I was late, you know, when everyone's talking about a book or a movie. Sometimes you just feel like you've read it already. So the Underground Railway, the Nickel Boys, everybody reading these books, rave, rave. <laughs> yada, yada. Certainly. So my strategy, read the latest first, Harlem Shuffle, and come in fresh. And then we're backwards. I have not yet got to the zombie apocalypse, but I'm looking forward to it. Meanwhile, I cannot tell you how much I have learned about mid-century American soft furnishings. <laughs> I'm honored to welcome Colson Whitehead, ladies and gentlemen. I have so many notes and I don't know where to start. Let's start with the mid-century American soft furnishings. So, sounds good, sounds good. Which if you have le if you've read Harlem Shuffle, you know that Ray Carney has a furniture store, right? And he talks about it all the time. You know, five years ago, Collins Hathaway could do no wrong. Now the customers are going argent with those clean lines and jet set emanations. How do you know about this stuff? Well, you know, uh, first, you know, thanks uh, for coming out tonight. I usually spend uh, Friday nights at home in my apartment weeping over my regrets. So it's a nice <laughs> change of pace for me anyway. Um, if you're going to have your character do something, you have to sell it. And so whether it's an elevator inspector like in The Intuitionist or a zombie apocalypse cleaner upper, those are the characters in Zone 1. Um, I want to make it real, even if, even if I know nothing about it. It turns out, with Ray Carney's job, I had no idea how much I loved mid-century modern furniture. <laughs> um, no matter what interest you have, someone has put it up on Pinterest. So if you go to Pinterest, you can get 50s and 60s furniture catalogs, and I would steal the language. But looking back, that was my first furniture, like watching sitcoms from the 60s, whether it's like the Brady Bunch or the Twilight Zone. Those clean lines, uh, those tapered legs, that was my first furniture I saw like on TV. And so I think it's my primal-er furniture to think about. I love it. You know, Pepper, he's hardcore, right? And he does the dirty work. But all he wants is an Egon recliner and pagoda standing lamp in payment. Well, the simple, yeah, the, sim <laughs> the simple things in life. You know, uh, he finds uh, common ground with Carney. Over I the love it. Of the book. Um, you've mentioned a lot of movies that have been intricately woven in here, movie references, which straight over my head because I don't know enough about movies. But talk to me about that. Well, it's just, you know, for me, like, it's, I start off as a heist novel. Um, I liked Ocean's Eleven. I kept renting it, and I was like, why do I keep doing this? Um, can I write a heist novel? And so in that movie, you know, everyone's really handsome and, and dapper. Um, I gravitated more towards like the sweaty 
uh, disheveled uh, heisters of movies like Asphalt Jungle, The Killing by Stanley Kubrick, Rififi, um, definitely early 70s, low technology crime movies like The Outfit or The Taking of Pelham 123 when people, some criminals hijack a subway car, Dog Day Afternoon. And so there's like a heist movie where they get away with it and they transcend their fate, they pull it off. And then there's the heist movie where everything goes wrong and the reader or viewer knows things are going wrong even when the cast or characters don't. And um, you cannot transcend your fate. You can't, you're always stuck by the rules of the world you've uh, been born into. And so I like the, the, the sad heist novel, the existential heist novel where things always go wrong and, you, and you're stuck in your place. There's a, it seems to me there's a Colson Whitehead hero, if you like, and it's somebody who's, who's well-meaning, but by circumstance or misfortune or injustice, they have been derailed, excuse the pun. And, and you make us want them to flourish, but in some way, whether they've got a cousin called Freddie or, you know, they've been, you know, caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, like Elwood, in this terrible, terrible bad luck, and they need to overcome it. Do you have a figure in your head that's kind of archetypal? I feel, you know, life is tragic, and life is also kind of silly and absurd. And depending on the book, I'm, I'm going... Um, uh, going back and forth, studying those different extremes or embracing one. So I, I feel like um, there is that sort of tragic hero, that, that tragic part of life that perhaps dominates some stories, but then also the absurdity. So I see, you know, stepping back, I, I feel like both impulses are, are, are in the work. Uh, the attempt to embrace um, the tragic and the sad and deplorable but also the funny and, and ridiculous. And so I feel like in Pepper you get both things. You get someone who's very cruel, but also um, by being sort of detached is a figure of fun. He has his own sense of, 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 of humor. So um, I feel like if I take all like 11 books or, or 12 books, I go between both extremes. When you say 12 books, it's because you've got the second of the trilogy under your belt now. And also, I've lost count just because uh, uh, <laughs> getting older. Um, I was thinking about the, the tragedy and absurdity and how you, you weave them both together so well. There's this great scene. Sorry to bang on about Harlem Shuffle. We will talk about other books in a moment. A great scene, um, and it's Freddie gets caught up in the, in the 84 riots, 64 riots, but all he wants is a sandwich. And there's nowhere, everywhere he turns, you know, people are rioting and protesting and they have a pure cause. He just wants a sandwich, man. Well, I think people have this idea that at that moment, all black people were down for the cause. Everyone's politically committed. And then there are people who are working 14 hours a day and they don't have time to think about what's happening or the change that's in the air. They are older and don't believe after all they see in their lives that things are about to change in 64 and 65. And then there are people who just want a sandwich. And Freddie, uh, he'll go to a protest march so you can like, talk to the girls and, and you know, maybe get a phone number. Um, but it's my duty to have that whole, uh, that whole variety, that, that whole cast, that community, and, and finding different ways to be realistic. And someone who's disengaged politically is realism, even if you want everyone to be politically committed. 
the, the, the racial issue is, of course, all through your books. And I wanted to talk about Martin Luther King because in um, The Nickel Boys, Elwood has studied his speeches. He's internalized the speeches. And the message that Martin Luther King speaks is throw us in jail and we will still love you. Beat us and leave us half dead and we will still love you. And that doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, it makes sense to Elwood. It doesn't make any sense to Turner, before right? He gets in, to, before he gets to Nickel Academy, and that's where Turner comes in. Turner's like, that's ridiculous. You know, the best you can do is get to bedtime without being beaten, uh, without being totally destroyed. And so, you know, that philosophical argument between the hopeful and the pessimistic, uh, the... The arc bending towards... Yes, yeah. Um, Turner can't see that. And, of course, Elwood, in his patient way, can see that. And then maybe once he's tested at Nickel Boys in the Nickel Academy, he's forced to really confront what that means. Does it exist? Does that, uh, that truth, that thing that everyone's fighting for in the early 60s and, and 50s actually exist? Or, as Turner is putting forth, um, are we stuck in this sort of in this stasis? Time has shown that Turner's right. I say, I, I personally agree. Generally, when people, like people read The Nickel Boys, they ask me, do you think this book will change things and drive legislation? Um, I'm always like, no. And they're like, what? And I was like, no, actually, the people who write the laws don't read literary fiction. I mean, our, uh, maybe New Zealand, a lot of politicians in the audience, I don't know. But, um, I think Obama might have had a few under his belt. Sure, yes. Uh, but I think in terms of, you know, novels definitely in America are not central to the culture in the way that they maybe should be. Um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, mid-19th century, did enlighten the Northerners about uh, the horrors of slavery. Um, the Jungle, Upton Sinclair, exposed abuses in the food industry in the 1920s. But nobody, it's not like Nickel Boys came out, you know, four years ago. It's not like the Florida legislature is like, we have to really, we have to deal with reparations, we have to figure out what happened. People want to move on, no one wants to be held accountable, um, and no one wants to dwell upon, you know, the sins of the fathers and grandfathers. So what's the, 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 the boys' home that the Nickel Boys is based on? Where, where's anybody at on that? Do people know where the bodies are buried now? Yeah, I mean, actually, like two years ago, they, found, they thought they found more bodies, but it was just a, a, a wrong sort of radar signal. Um, so, yeah, so the abuses were exposed, like, every 10 years. There'd be a whistleblower or some kids coming forward so from when it opened in 19, 1900. And so there would be this period of reform and then backsliding, and that's the way it went for 110 years. So now... The body, some of the bodies have been identified, you know, boys ran away and their parents were told that um, they were in the community, they're actually in the ground, um, and some of the boys were, um, have been identified from their bones and, and dental records. Uh, everyone's dug up, and, and the survivors are still fighting for reparations. 
it was a big story in Florida for many years, and this one day I happened to be on Twitter, and someone retweeted a news report about it, and then it disappeared again. But it stayed with me from that one moment where it entered a national conversation. And you know, name me a country that hasn't got a story like that. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about it when I was writing it, but going to Ireland, people were like, oh, this is like the sort of Magdalene Laundry is where... We've got our own investigation into, into state care here. Yeah, Canada, here, um, Australia, wherever people can get away with abusing people no one cares about, they will. And that's what I sort of went into when I started the book. Um, the guilty will go unpunished, and the innocent will suffer. And that was my sort of, my two sort of phrases I had um, above my desk. I think that's why I like Ray Carney in the Harlem Shuffle, because he doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. No, he's and definitely, and in the second book, Crook Manifesto, um, there's some, <laughs> some more revenge schemes, which are very sort of fun to write. And it's not, I mean, it's, it's not only white people that, that put him down. It's elite black people in New York. I mean, that's why... Well, it's, it's, it's race and class, you know. And so class, it, yeah, right. it's, So it's all these different forces working upon him. And when he tries to enter the club for the hoity-toity black businessman, he's darker skin that's not initially welcomed. Um, all those things are coming into play, where, he's, where he comes from, his race, his uh, colorism. And so what is great about that book for me is seeing him outwit all these different forces. And sometimes he wins, sometimes he loses, but all these, I'm coming up with all different ways to like sort of nudge him around and he's uh, fighting back in different ways. Yeah, and like all those great movies, even though they're criminals, you're on their side. Well, that's the thing about, you know, perspective. I think, you know, going to pop culture, whether it's Michael Corleone or Tony Soprano, if you see the world through this despicable person's eyes, you're in their camp. And that's the sort of, there's that empathy that is generated when we see the world through these psychopaths' uh, perspectives. And so I definitely, in different books, have exploited that. And Carney is not as bad as people I just mentioned, he's not as bad as some of the bigger criminals in the book, but um, his minor league crime, we excuse because we like him, and we sort of understand where he's coming from. And he's trying to survive. Yeah, he's trying to survive. Against the odds, really. The spring, my sister told me a story that my grandfather had run moonshine from Canada to New York for the mob. Of course, I was like, really? What? That's so crazy. <laughs> so um, I asked my mom. She's like, I don't know a thing about that. And <laughs> this is your mother's father. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, my, my dad's father, but my mom, you know, of course, knew. Right. And she said, uh, but in those days, everyone did a little something. You know, everyone is sort of bending the rules in their own way, sometimes in a big way, sometimes in a small way. And um, I think that's people in general, but also I think Harlem in the 50s and 60s. Um, good old-fashioned crime as well, because you don't have to bugger around with the cell phones and the, and the tech and the CCTV. Well, there's a bit of CCTV, actually. But, you know, it's so much easier. It is. It's a lot easier. Um, definitely. Uh, I've been writing historical stuff the last, you know, 10 years. And um, I've dealt with technology a lot in my earlier books. Um, and technology definitely ruins a lot of the suspense and yeah. uh, contrivances that I rely on. Um, 
I wanted to talk about, I will get around to Underground Railroad, I seem to be beating around the bush. John Henry Day's strikes me as a really unusual book. It stars a guy called Jay Sutter, who is a kind of a hack writer who survives on um, expense account abuse. And he's covering this towering heroic figure called John Henry, who took on the machines, powering their way through the rock, and won. And I, I just think, what kind of idea is that? Well, you know, um, so John Henry, American folklore hero, he was uh, the, the biggest, baddest steel driver. He could outrace anybody uh, drilling through mountains. The steam, the railroad company hires a steam drill, a machine that can outrace any human. And they have a race, and he wins, but then he kills over. And so that's, that's an American folk story. I saw a cartoon of it, and I was like a kid, and it stayed with me. Is he a hero? Is he a victim of his own pride? Is he striking a blow for humanity? And then, you know, I wrote it in the late 90s. It was the start of uh, internet, internet culture and the way people started talking about writing as content and uh, the, the language we have now about content is king and, and it's not art, it's content. And so I was wrestling with that as like a young writer and capturing this moment in the early part of the information age where there, I saw parallels between my junkie journalism and ironic parallels with, uh, the infra- with the industrial age. So John Henry is this industrial age anxiety figure. How could I graph that onto my experience in the content trenches? And you're talking about my characters now. I feel like now they have wives, they have kids, they have people like Turner, they have like a crew. In my first couple of books, everyone was like a loner with no, with no crew. And, um, is that because that was you? That, yeah, I'm more identified with that you know, back then. And it was him, the main character, Jay Sutter, against inside this mountain, racing against his own sort of steam drill. And um, it's a very maximal book. It's very sort of what is rangy. Oh, it's sort of uh, in the way that Nickel Boys is very concise and compact. Right. That book has a lot of different characters, different time periods. It's you know, I'm riffing and bebopping on everything, and uh, it's definitely a young, younger person's book. Uh-uh. It's funny. There's some jokes in it, hopefully, yeah. This is a joke I like. <laughs> Tiny says, you know, I don't mean to be on PC. He's the kind of man who says I don't mean to be on PC a lot, but I like Little Black Sambo. My mother used to read me Little Black Sambo when she tucked me into bed at night. It's a cute story underneath. And Jay Sutter says, you were undisturbed by the eye holes cut out of the pillow you lay your little head on. Um, It's good. (laughs) Um, They are very funny. The Underground Railroad is not funny. There's no room, weirdly, there's no room. There are no jokes in the Underground Railroad. Um, Usually, you know, I think that kind of joking that we're talking about was a real prop of mine and uh, helped me get through a lot of different books, helps me get through the world. But I realized once I committed to Underground Railroad that I was not able to use that kind of ironic, sardonic tone. 
Um, it was not Cora's story, it was not the world. There is a story like Gone with the Wind where uh, that's not particularly realistic or is realistic, but we don't address the fact that the main character is like a slave owner. You know, it's like, oh no, the army's coming, they're gonna burn down my house. It's like, they should burn your house down, you're a slave owner. <laughs> so, I was not gonna write that kind of slave story. I was gonna be accurate and it started off with this abstract idea like, oh, what if the metaphor was a real train? And then once I started doing, obviously, the research and coming to the material in my 40s, um, as opposed to being a kid watching Roots or something, I realized that um, my props, my, my jokingness would not fit, and also it would have to be really brutal just to be realistic. And I wanted to be realistic because my ancestors you know, somehow survived that. Terribly brutal. Did, I mean, on the third day just after lunch, the hands were recalled from the fields, the washwomen and the cooks and the stable hands interrupted from their tasks, the house staff diverted from its maintenance. They gathered on the front lawn. Randall's visitors sipped spice rum as Big Anthony was doused with oil and roasted. The witnesses were spared his screams as his manhood had been cut off on the first day, stuffed in his mouth and sewn in. Did that happen? Um, I found a story of someone of a Jamaican plantation where they put, castration was very common. You know, you castrate the black brute so he cannot defile, you know, white womanhood. Um, and I found a story of a Jamaican plantation where they put shit in the slave's mouth and then sewed it shut. So I, it comes from there. And in terms of the spectacle, um, slave punishments were routinely moments of spectatorship, you know, the cautionary tale for the slaves and slave people, and also um, spectacles for the white onlookers. And then when lynching became a way of controlling black people after slavery, some of the early American photography is lynching photographs, where the whole town has come out and you see they light someone on fire and hang them. And there's like grandma and little Daisy, the five-year-old, and the whole town is smiling and there's this black figure who's been destroyed. So yes, it was a, a public spectacle. Because these people were not considered to be human beings. Yes, yeah. And that's why they're property, right? And this is Ridgeway, the slave hunter. He's unapologetic, you know? Somebody steals something, something runs away, you have to go and get it. No, yeah, I mean, you, the enslaved person is a piece of property. And, uh, you know, the way that the book talks about capitalism, you know, uh, uh, a high-value piece of property is something that's traded, um, something that's, uh, is not human. It's another implement on the farm. I did not realize that South Carolina was better than North Carolina in terms of how it treated people? Well, you know, I, I exaggerate, you know, definitely once you get on this metaphorical railroad, I am shifting things around. So it starts realistically in Georgia, and then the, diff the different states have different characters. So a exaggerate, exaggerating. So yeah. 
So North Carolina is an exaggeration of a Jim Crow state. Jim Crow is the laws after slavery that restricted black life. And um, I took from Nazi Germany, uh, Nazi scientists and their ideas of racial purity, drew from American scientists who used their ideas about racial purity to justify slavery. The Nazis ran with it, and that became the Holocaust. Um, Oregon and Washington, the United States, were white separatist states. It was illegal for a black person to live or own property in, in Oregon and Washington until the 1920s. So I exaggerate, and, and once, once the journey on the train starts, we're in alternative Americas. Um, and South Carolina seems like it's a, a place where you can get a job and a housing and education, sort of an echo of, of uh, social programs in the 1960s in America. But of course, there's an underside, and also, it's only page 120, and there's more things to come. So it, South Carolina cannot be as good as you would want it to be. One of the people that you thank in the acknowledgements will say that their work was very helpful. Stephen Jay Gould. Why? Um, he wrote a book called, uh, I got my sort of training in, in how slavery worked as a freshman in college. He taught a class with a Harlem Renaissance scholar named Nathan Huggins. It was a really great class and really uh, opened my eyes. It was called Changing Concepts of Race in America. Stephen Jay Gould's, one of his big books, is called The Mis Measurement of Man. And it was about scientific racism. You know, how can racist whites justify their oppression of black people, Asian people? Well, you make up, you know, ideas about cranial size, like your, 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 uh, your skull is a certain size, a certain shape that determines your intellectual capacity. So um, that's where I read my first slave uh, narratives, Frederick Douglass, uh, Harriet Jacobs. And that's where I really sort of, I definitely got none of this in high school. You know, there's nothing about black history or, or slavery or Jim Crow in high school. So it was really college where uh, I became acquainted with how America actually really worked. A lot of your writing seems to deal with that question that we referred to earlier, how to deal with injustice, how to respond to injustice. So you've got the Martin Luther King and you've got the Malcolm X. I mean... Do you have any thoughts on that? Given that I suspect you are basically a pessimist who's trying to be an optimist. No, I'll, I'll go along with that. I mean, um, I don't have any uh, solutions. I don't know how we fix the problem of humanity. I think we're deeply flawed people, and we act terribly towards each other, and I don't see that changing in my lifetime. I have nothing to offer. If you're lucky, you, you, find some, you find your community, you find people uh, who can help you get by, you find something you enjoy in life, but generally, things are pretty bleak. I mean, this is, this is back to the Harlem Shuffle. The riots, and somebody says, it might have been Pepper, he says, what's the point? Everything keeps on the way it is, so all the protests were for nothing. Well, I think you do. And what that's is 1964, right? And it's police brutality. You know, I, 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 nothing has changed. Well, you know, in 64, 
uh, is when the Nickel Boys takes place, and just around the corner is where we get serious voting rights uh, legislation, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act. So things do change, like right after Elwood's story in, in 64. And right after the protests in Harlem Shuffle, things are about to change. And then, 30 years later, a really conservative, reactionary Supreme Court can roll back all that stuff. All these advances are really precarious because um, there are a lot of bad actors. And, and in some ways, that character, I think it's a bartender, is right to say things don't change, but you have to, um, they definitely won't change unless you, you know, can find that element of hope. And definitely the zombie apocalypse novel and Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys have that element of hope. In the apocalypse novel, it's everyone's dead, things are quite sad, um, but you have to hope there's a, a human settlement, you know, uh, in Maine somewhere, where people can rebuild society, or else why go on? And Cora, even though she's never left the plantation, has to believe that there's a place of freedom, even if she's never been outside of, you know, a couple of acres, or else why leave? And then in the Nickel Boys, if you don't have that idea that you can escape the Nickel Academy, you can't go on. And so all those, despite all my pessimism and what I was just saying, those three books are definitely animated by this idea that we can escape if we try. We can leave our circumstances um, if we believe and put the work in. Mm. George Floyd must have been killed while you were writing Harlem Shuffle, huh? Really, like the last, the very last week. I, I, I really fin I finished the book on a Thursday, and the next day I woke up and the, and the, the protests had started, and uh, Minneapolis was uh, in flames, and so um, I was not being prescient when I ended the last section of Harlem Shuffle with a big police brutality case. That's the, the common weather in, in, in the States, and definitely my whole life, there's always been a high-profile murder by white police, and we talk about it, and there's a conversation, and it, it dies off, and then Two years later, there's another one, and it starts up again, and then dies off. And uh, George Floyd, three years ago, was obviously the start of a big conversation. It's died off now. And then, you know, as we speak, I'm sure something terrible is happening that will blow up virally. Um, with Zone 1, the zombie apocalypse novel, were you being prescient about the pandemic? Did you write that before the pandemic? I, I did. It was like 10 years ago, and people have said it was prescient. I mostly beat up myself about things I did not predict. I did not predict that when my zombie cleaner-uppers go into an abandoned apartment that there'd be rolls of toilet paper. It's like stacks of toilet paper. <laughs> people were hoarding. So um, I saw some things, not other things. Um, I asked you if you wanted to read something. You said, sure. You chose something from Harlem Shuffle. And it's that bit. Yeah, very good. Yeah, so it's early, and Carney's cousin Freddie has put an idea in his head about a heist. And Carney's like, I would never do that. And then, of course, starts thinking about it. Sandra, the waitress, refilled Carney's cup. He didn't notice. Carney was only slightly bent when it came to being crooked in practice and ambition. 
the odd piece of jewelry, the electronic appliances, Freddy, and then a few other local characters brought by the store he could justify. Nothing major, nothing that attracted undue attention to his store, the front he put out to the world. If he got a thrill out of transforming these ill-gotten goods into legit merchandise, a zap charge in his blood like he plugged into a socket, he was in control of it and not the other way around, dizzying and powerful as it was. Everyone had secret corners and alleys that no one else saw. What mattered were your major streets and boulevards, the stuff that showed up on other people's maps of you. The thing inside him that gave a yell or tug or, or shout now and again was not the same thing his father had, that sickness drawing every moment into its service. The sickness Freddie ministered to now, more and more. Poor Freddie. I understand how he wanted to bust out into Harlem Shuffle after writing two very heavy books in many ways. I mean, certainly The Underground Railroad and The Nickel Boys. They're, they're hard books, right? They're hard books, and usually I do something serious and lighter, but then... Also, you have to break your codes and, and, and break your structures. And so um, I felt compelled to write The Nickel Boys after Trump got elected. I was like, where are we headed as a country? Should I be optimistic that things are changing or are we stuck in this regressive mode? And so when my schedule was clear and I had to decide between Harlem Shuffle and Nickel Boys, I went for The Nickel Boys I could, because through Elwood and Turner, I could deal with my own philosophical dilemma but Harlem Shuffle would have, you know, would have been a lighter choice after a book about slavery. Um, I'm glad I got back. I, I'm glad I was able to. I was still into the idea when Nickel Boys was done. There are lines I just love. This is in the Nickel Boys. Ishmael was a man of secret menace who stored up violence like a battery. How long did it take to write that? A long time, a long time. You rewrite constantly, do you? Yeah, I mean, definitely if you know it's not done, you gotta fix it. Yeah, so. but how do you know it's done? It doesn't, doesn't feel right, it doesn't look right, it sucks. I knew when I started Nickel Boys, it was gonna be very tight and controlled. It was gonna be 200 pages max. It ended up being like 205, and I was very upset for a little while. But the, it was going to be very precise in a way that my earlier books were, were not. They were very unruly, and it was perfectly fine. This is how I did things back then. Um, so I was studying short novels and novellas by either Julio Tsuka, American novelist, uh, Dennis Johnson, Edith Wharton, and I figured out how do they get it so tight? Where do they leave in? Where do they take out? What do you discard? when you're doing something short. And so definitely with Underground, I, I, I was definitely in, in a groove where I was becoming a little more focused and I felt that day to day I was in a new place. And then the, definitely with Nickel Boys, it is so compact that uh, um, I, I liked when I could get lines like the ones you just read that say so much with you know, great economy. And, and the Underground Railroad, I mean, to some extent, they're all thrillers because you know what is going to happen, but the Underground Railroad is a thriller, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I've written books that are plot-heavy and plot-less. You know, my, mostly my big autobiographical book is called Sag Harbor. It's about a neighborhood in Long Island and growing up in the 80s. I'm you're quite frank about that. It's autobiographical. I thought you were going to be... Here's a word you use a lot, and I love it. Mealy. Mealy, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to be mealy about that. Well, Just when it came out 14 years ago, I was like, oh, it's semi-autobiographical. And now half the people are dead, and who gives a shit? So now I just say autobiographical. So I was so afraid of saying Sag Harbor, it's autobiographical. Authors hate that. You know, well, I'm a novelist. I make stuff up. No, autobiographical, okay, got that. Uh, but yeah, in terms of plotless and thriller, in that book, the most exciting thing, and I build up for 200 pages, is the main character getting his braces off. So, um, <laughs> Uh, and so writing a plot-heavy book like definitely Harlem Shuffle is intricate kind of heists. And then uh, Underground Railroad is an escape. And Cora is escaping for her life. And so there are stakes immediately from the start. And then it has that um, odyssey-type structure where the hero or heroine has to solve an allegorical problem before you can go to the next one. And you solve that one, go to the next one. And so the structure is very old and durable, and then the stakes are very high. And you managed to get away with it even though you've made up this railroad and you're relying on, yeah, an odyssey. It's, but it's still so real. You've managed to make it realer by those motifs. Well, I had the idea for, for many years, and I was not ready to write it, and then um, I committed to the idea, and I went back to 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and before then, the book was very science fiction-y, like, instead of having, there were some medical experiments in South Carolina, and like, originally it was like in the future, and it was like DNA splicing, and then going back to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I realized that his brand of magical realism was the way to go. You know, thing, odd things are happening, fantastic things are happening, but the narrator never breaks composure. Cora is never like, what, a, a train that goes a thousand miles? You just accept all this crazy stuff with a straight face. And, um, and so it's a mixture between the very real and the fantastic, and the fantastic, because of the way the narrator is dealing with it and the characters, it's you know, woven into the reality of the book. That's absolutely solid. Here's a description of the railway. The stairs led onto a small platform. The black mouths of the gigantic tunnel opened at either end. It must have been 20 feet tall. Walls lined with dark and light-colored stones in an alternating pattern. The sheer industry that had made such a project possible. Two steel rails, ran the visible length of the tunnel, pinned into the dirt by wooden cross ties. I mean, it's absolutely solid, isn't it? Well, I, I want you to see it, and I want it to be acceptable, and also it's incredibly weird. That word, mealy, we're familiar with it when you say somebody's mealy-mouthed. It means, you know, they're not, they're just relying on euphemisms and they're beating around the bush, mealy-mouthed. But you use it a lot in all sorts of, it's, it's derogatory, but what is it? What does it mean, mealy? 
sort of rotten, the way I use it is sort of rotten and corrupt. Is it an American word, or is it your word? Um, it's, uh, it's not used as often as it should be. Yeah. You know, hopefully, <laughs> I'm starting a renaissance. Uh, I use it all the time now. <laughs> mealy, mealy, mealy. It's great. Um, there's one uh, word, instead of being stubborn, I'm using mulish. And I use it the last three books. I'm like, oh, it's time to bring out mulish again. I can only use one mulish a book. And I always have to try to find the right moment to describe someone as mulish. <laughs> and mealy, too. You, don't want to you haven't it. rationed mealy, though. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I'm only human. That's all over the show. <laughs> um, we have time for audience questions. If you'd like to bring the lights out and queue up by the microphone. Hello. Um, you've won many literary prizes, so firstly, congratulations. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about wh what your view about literary prizes is, generally. Are they meaningful in the literary landscape? And for you personally, have they been meaningful? With, I've been writing books for 25 years, and so I've had ups and downs, and definitely The Underground Railroad and its reception uh, was new for me, and, and, and the response, whether it's with readers or with people who give out prizes, you know, has been sort of life-changing. I think we talked about the way that Nickel Boys travels in different countries. I didn't realize that the story of Cora, an escaped enslaved person, would resonate with so many different people. Unfortunately, the relationship between the oppressors and the oppressed exists everywhere. And so I went to Poland. They'd say, oh, this reminds me of the Polish resistance against the Nazis. The American abolitionists are like, you know, those freedom fighters. And everyone, every, most people have been enslaved or controlled by royalty and oppressed. And so Cora struggle ha has traveled uh, all over the world. Um, so I'm grateful that I can go to New Zealand. I, I always like to go to a new place and, and be depressed in a, a country I've never been depressed in before. <laughs> um, and it's because people dig the books. And, you know, I've been very lucky with the last couple. Um, I've got a question about Zone 1. What was going on with you when you decided <laughs> to write, like, a zombie apocalypse book? And what, um, what other zombie slash apocalyptic um, books and shows inspired you? I saw Night of the Living Dead when I was very young. Um, I was, like, 10 or something. It was like Halloween, and even then, this had a black protagonist, so that was like new for the time and new for me. And even then, I knew that a white mob pursuing a black guy and trying to tear him limb from limb was like a metaphor <laughs> for America. And then for every, for decades, I had zombie dreams after Dawn of the Dead, and so every month- You really I, did have zombie dreams? Oh yeah, yeah, for, uh, they're fast, they're slow, they talk to me, they catch me, I escape depending on whatever's happening in my life. And then uh, I had a dream one time. I was getting divorced. My father had died. I was going through a weird time, and I had house guests. And I woke up, and I heard them. And I was like, get the f*** out of my house. But I couldn't say that, so I just stayed in my bedroom and had a dream. And in the dream, I couldn't go into my living room because I was not sure if they'd swept the zombies out yet. And so then I woke up, and I was like, oh, that's actually a real concern, like when the apocalypse is over, how do you get out rid of all the zombies? Someone has to go door to door. And so that became that book. Usually if you wake up in the middle of the night and it's like, 
you have an idea, you write it down in the darkness, and in the morning it's something stupid like, kill my father, have sex with my mother. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not a novel, you know. It's been done before. Um, so, zombie, so the original Romero zombie, apocalypse, zombie movies are the antecedents, but also stuff like Omega Man, uh, Invasion of Body Snatchers. You know, for me, the zombie horror is your neighbors, your family, your friends dropping the mask and revealing themselves to be the monsters they've always been. And so normal people are suddenly pod people. They're zombies. So it's science fiction, but also the zombie stories and my own interpretation of certain things that are not traditionally zombie stories, like Invasion of Body Snatchers, but are in there because of my sad psychology. Hi. Um, I've been puzzling over uh, Homer, the, the little boy, and um, I'm just wondering, I, I, I keep thinking about him and what he represents as an idea or, um, yeah, as a concept in general. Just wondering. Yeah, he's a, he's a horrible imp. And if you see the, the TV show, they really cast him perfectly. He's like this little devilish dude. Um, but um, in some ways, the relationship between the enslaved and the enslaver is understandable, and in some ways it's not. And so slavery ends, and then there are people who are freed who stayed on their plantations because they knew nothing else. They'd never, literally never been off it. And so they stayed and worked for their former master, I assume for some money. But they didn't go to New York. They, they stayed in this place. Um, there were slave masters who would say, oh, you know, Bessie, the house slave, is like a mother to me, you know, um, part of the family. And, of course, you have sex with Bessie, Bessie's kids and have kids with them, and beat them, and rape them, and sell them off. And Bessie's not a member of the family, despite this conception. So I wanted to explore that with Homer and Ridgway. And also, in terms of becoming a different kind of writer over time, not over-explain it. And so I had a rule for Homer, which was, Homer's going to Homer. And whatever Homer wanted to do, I would let him do. And that seemed to work for me, anyway. You talk about the internal contradictions that the U.S. has, because you articulate it so wonderfully to non-American audiences, do you feel a responsibility that I am projecting a sort of American greatness nonetheless, because you're a product of the U.S.? 30 years ago, a black artist had to address race or history in a certain kind of way. Um, I feel... It's my job to do what's important to me as a person and an artist. And sometimes that's political, and I'm addressing the world. And then sometimes it's a very private vision. And that's what I like about my job. I, I can write about zombies, and I can write about Jim Crow and uh, crooks because I like them. And, I'm not, and I can just do what I want because life is short, so I just write books I like. <laughs> and I feel responsibility about things. We could have saved time. You said that at the beginning. We could all be enjoying <laughs> a glass of red wine now. We would have saved us a lot of time. Somebody's been very patient up there, I think, yes. In, in Tauranga, we have, uh, where I come from, up until 1955, my mother couldn't use the whareipaku. Uh, that's the toilet over here, brother. That's the sad news. Uh, the good news is my mother's name was Kiritapu, and our Minister of Justice is her granddaughter, 
Kitty Tapu Allen. So take that back with you, brother. Sure, sure, sure. Thank you, thank you. You're up. Sometimes when you write things down, you feel angry, but then you also don't want to be an angry person, you know? No, that, that, yeah, I mean, that is true for, for writers and just being a person in the world and dealing with whatever, your personal, whatever is difficult in your story. And we all have different things that happen in our lives that we are trying to control so that we can function. Um, in, in terms, specifically in terms of Underground and Nickel Boys, uh, you have to be compartmentalized. And so Underground Railroad, I did a lot of my heavy lifting before I started writing. But also I had to reckon with the fact that it's uh, a miracle I'm here, that this or that ancestor was not killed in the Middle Passage, killed on the plantation. Somehow they had a child that they raised on the plantation who wasn't killed or sold off. And then 200 years later, my family came into being. So I had to reckon with that. And then I started writing, and it was very separate. I did have a moment when halfway through the book, I was like, oh, I'll watch 12 Years a Slave. Maybe I'll get some, something I can use. And I, and I could only get halfway through it because I could write, write it every day, the brutality of the, of the plantation, but I couldn't watch actors go through it. And of course I know they're actors, but I just couldn't go there. So I haven't really watched any slavery-themed movies since then, just because I can't do it. Um, with Nicola Boys, I never went to the Dozier School to model. I, I kept wanting to go there for research, like a real boy writer, and then I bought a plane ticket and got a hotel room and then couldn't go. I had this real sort of heaviness in my heart, this dread, and I'd internalized, you know, I just felt the place was very evil, and I felt very sad about going there, and I could not make, make myself go there. I'd never gone there. And then definitely the last eight weeks of writing that book, as I got closer to the, the stories, the end of Elwood and Turner's stories, I'd set them on this tragic path. I was very, you know, down, and, and I finished the book, and then I grilled and played video games for eight weeks, and then that's how I got out of it. So compartmentalization and also nightly wine and video games <laughs> afterwards. So. She won't sit down. I'll give you the last question. Thanks, Kim. Kia ora, Coulson. What's on your bucket list? I'm working on a brisket. Um, so I have, a, I have a, a smoker, it's very beloved, and like my ribs are down, definitely. My it means chicken. meat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't you? Yeah, yeah. Right, smoke, like yeah. a barbecue. Barbecue Double smoker, barbecue. yeah. And so the brisket is a very daunting challenge. Uh, I've done it like six times. I can do it in the oven and a braise. That's really, you know, not that bad. But in my smoker, I'm still learning bit by bit. And um, like all of us, I'm on a journey. And it's uh, a meat journey. So thanks so much, Kim. <laughs> thank you, Colson, and, and thank, thank you. all you guys.